Hi, I'm Stacy Weidlitz, a composer, photographer, and community arts leader. Uh, my website is stacywidelitz.com, and uh, welcome to Two Geeks Talking. Good morning, afternoon, evening, everyone. Two Geeks Talking is an entertainment industry interview show where we interview the creative people from the comic, film, TV, movie, and video game industries. And of course, I'm your host, Kurt Sasso. We are joined today by a very talented individual. Not only is he a world-renowned composer in Hollywood, he is also president of the National Opera Association, as well as a famed photographer and a very creative person in his own right in many different aspects we'll touch on today. We're joined by the ever-talented Stacey Weidlitz. How are you doing today? Good, good. And uh, just so it's uh, clear, I'm actually past president of Nashville uh, and past president of Nashville Film Festival and leadership music, a bunch of things. I got very involved in the arts here in, in Nashville. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's cold outside for Nashville, but I'm doing well. Wonderful. For those that don't know anything about yourself as a creative person, tell us who you are and what you're bringing to Two Geeks Talking today. I've been a musician basically my whole life. I started playing clubs when I was 15 years old on Long Island, where I grew up in New York. Then around the age of 19 or 20, started picking up some composing work with a little studio in Connecticut, in Stanford, Connecticut. And that just started to expand. The studio expanded. We started doing high-level industrial shows and some local jingles. Then when I was 24, my then-girlfriend and I wrote the theme for the Richard Simmons show. So that was my first national credit. And that show became such a hit that it prompted... Uh, she and I to move to Los Angeles the next year. That started, you know, that branch of my career, uh, scoring, which was my main interest. At first, it was a lot of similar things to The Simmons Show. It's more daytime television themes, some nighttime stuff, specials. And then along the way, I met this actor who turned out he lived around the block from me. And that was Patrick Swayze. And that's how we came to write the song She's Like the Wind, for which made it into Dirty Dancing, uh, for which I am forever grateful. I did the scores for, I think it was 21 movies of the week for the networks, a bunch of uh, documentaries for ABC World of Discovery, uh, one of which got me nominated for an Emmy for the score. Co-wrote the end title song for Pocahontas 2 for Disney. Uh, so, you know, just tons of work. Then after 19 years in LA, I moved to Nashville because it was another music town and it was time to get out of LA. And uh, so I've been here ever since. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing having a career and is going to work every day a fun job still after all these years? Well, music, I, I still enjoy uh, thoroughly. I'm not really working in the TV and movie world anymore. That can burn you out. Uh, because the deadlines are uh, horrendous and they've only gotten worse over time. I, I know a lot of current composers, first off, also the fees have gone down by half, uh, which is not fun. And the royalties, the back end, you're hitting some of the same issues that songwriters hit with uh, streaming services that just don't pay the same type of back end royalties like when I was doing all the network movies. 
So it's it's different. So music will always be incredibly. I mean, it's all I've ever done. It's I don't I don't know how to type. I better make a career at music because there's no alternative for me. Uh, <laughs> although now another artistic pursuit has come up. So, uh, but yeah, it's it's still very important, and I'll you know always sit at the piano for a little while every day, and and I'm still doing some songwriting here and there. Good. Well, that that's wonderful to hear. Um, myself, my mother got me into playing the clarinet. That is my musical ah. uh, acumen, <laughs> and I, I loved it. It's it's a wonderful instrument. I haven't played it in about ten years, but maybe I'll, I'll brush it off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you you should. It's uh, as long as you don't set. You know, you I'm, okay by tomorrow. I have to be Benny Goodman. <laughs> you know, it's it's like it's enjoyable. It's good to expand your horizons, and especially if it's something that you enjoyed once before you know, dust the thing off. What is the most misunderstood aspect about being a composer and a musician that people who don't follow it misunderstand? I would say the pressure. You know, they think of it as this thing where you you get up in the morning and then you're inspired and it's like, oh, I, I've got it. I'm going to write this and write this. But being a for hire composer uh, like I was um, in Hollywood, you're under tremendous deadlines. You're under enormous pressure to deliver on time. If you don't deliver on time, it's the end of your career. So that's how much pressure there is. You know, just being able to cope with the, the, the ups and downs that, you know, you're going to be hot at times and other times you just can't get a job and you have to take the long view that if this is my career, then I have to cope with those times. I also, then you become a businessman and you say to yourself, I have to budget for those times too. So I would say that that's very misunderstood. It's not like when I was doing a lot of the TV movies, it's not like I woke up in the morning and say, I'm so inspired. It's like, I am so frightened this morning because if I don't deliver, I'm, I'm dead. So there's no such thing as writer's block mm. when you're a, a for hire a composer. You're known for Dirty Dancing. You're known for She's Like the Wind and, and an amazing collaborative effort, of course, with Patrick Swayze, who unfortunately passed away many years ago, uh, which is a true tragedy in itself. Yeah. What was the pivotal moment that transformed She's Like the Wind from a rejected song for Grandview USA to a chart-topping hit for Dirty Dancing? And how did your collaboration with Patrick Swayze contribute to its success? In the case of Dirty Dancing... The collaboration that we had, it was brilliant on the part of the producers and director of Dirty Dancing to pick up our song as the romantic ballad because he was the romantic lead. Uh, the song happened to fit the movie perfectly lyrically. So, uh, but really nothing changed from the time we wrote it for uh, Grandview USA. What we did was we did a really good demo of it with Patrick singing it, uh, my girlfriend Wendy singing on it, who is on the final version also. The demo was there. Uh, and then when um, the, the song was licensed for Dirty Dancing, record producer named Michael Lloyd was brought in. And the executive producer on the record was Jimmy Einer, the legend of music. Michael used the demo as a guide. You know, the tempo was the same. I even recreated all the synthesizer parts that I played on the demo. So when you listen to the song, that's me playing all the synthesizer parts. But Michael 
did some things that were absolutely brilliant, especially this is a little music geeky. Uh, he added a bar of five right before the breakdown, just for a big dramatic moment. And I would never have thought of that. Um, and he did some other great stuff, adding the sleigh bells at the end and the singers uh, chanting, you know, uh, just a fool, she's like the wind. So I think it started off with a really good demo. Michael brought it to the next level. And that's what helped it really take off when it was released as a single. That's amazing. I think synthesizers get a bad rap nowadays compared to yeah. when they were used in, in the eighties, uh, nineties uh, eras of, of music, which I, I grew up in those decades. So they were a great instrument and when they were used right, they were amazing. But when they were used possibly incorrectly, at least for the untrained ear, um, it was something that just really took you out of the song. What is it about the synthesizer Oberheim eight synthesizer specifically that made this particular song just so much better. Well, the OB-8 was a, by Oberheim was a great synthesizer. I mean, there are so many songs that use that. Uh, you think of Jump by Van Halen. That's an OB-8. Don't Forget About Me by um, Something Minds. Uh, don't you forget about me. Anyway, that's covered with OB-8 all over the place. So it was an iconic sound of that time. A lot of mistakes that musicians make with synthesizers, especially composers, is when they try to duplicate an orchestra too closely, because that always sounds a little cheesy to me. Use the synthesizer for what it does best, making sounds that nobody's ever heard before and using those dramatically. And that I think that's the way to, to go with uh, synthesizers. Do you think the synthesizer can make its return in, in this decade of music? Well, it has through EDM. Oh. through electronic dance music is all synth. Matter of fact, a lot of those bands don't have guitars anymore. They're really synth driven. And people are hearing synth sometimes. They don't even know necessarily that it's a synth, a drum track or a bass track. So I think EDM has kept synthesizers in the, in the mix, whether they're now, you know, synthesizers can be contained completely within the computer, you know, digital versions of older of synthesizers or new, you know, uh, sounds. So if anything, you know, somebody sitting at home with a laptop can create incredible uh, music uh, through the synthesizers and electronic processing. You jump from LA to Nashville, two different styles of, of musical aspects when it comes to, you have the Hollywood scene and you have the Nashville scene known for its country music. But you're also involved in many different community aspects in the Nashville scene itself, specifically even the Opera House. How did that come about? Because Nashville's known for country, but opera, that seems different. <laughs> well, Nashville now, it, to me, is the center of the universe of all types of music. I mean, you think about it, the Black Keys are here, Jack White is here, Kings of Leon started here, Paramore started here. Uh, so there's a big rock scene, there's a burgeoning rap and hip-hop movement going on but classical music has always been there i mean the nashville symphony has been nominated or has won i think 13 or 14 grammys uh it's really a world-class organization and nashville opera well what, what happened with my journey into the arts actually 
goes back when I first moved here. It's not like I dove right into writing for the country market. I was actually involved with a film that Patrick and his wife, Lisa, were doing based on a piece that they did in the mid 80s uh, stage piece that I was involved with back then. They adapted it for a film and brought me on to write uh, the score for it and uh, music for a bunch of the dance sequences. That film got entered into the Nashville Film Festival, which I really wasn't familiar with and was accepted. And then when the people at the film festival found out that the composer was local, they reached out to me and said, you know, would you be willing to do a panel on film music for us? Uh, and I said, yeah, sure. But then Patrick called me and he said, hey, we're thinking of coming to Nashville for the premiere of the film or for the screening of the film. I said, oh, okay, well, if you do that, why don't you appear on this panel with me? Uh, you and Lisa, because she directed the film. And that way we could talk about the collaborative aspect of music for film, because it is very collaborative. They said, okay, great. And so they agreed to that. And then they said, can we stay with you? And I was like, oh my God, it's going to be a madhouse here. But I said, yeah, and they'd stayed here before. So the panel went really well. The screening of the film went really well. I won uh, the best music award in the film festival, not even knowing. I didn't go to the award ceremony because I didn't know I was in competition. <laughs> when the festival was over, some of the board members whom I'd gotten to know reached out to me and said, would you be willing to join the board of directors of the film festival? And I said, yeah, sure. I said, I've never been on an arts board. That could be interesting. I made a terrible mistake. So this is 2004. I showed organizational skill. And so as a result, by 2007, I was president of the film festival and served for two years. Along the way, I had been uh, drafted onto the board of a classical chamber music group called Alias Chamber Ensemble. And then I went through this great program here in Nashville called Leadership Music. Hmm. I call it the cult behind the music industry. So I ended up as president of Alias for four years. I was drafted for the board of Nashville Opera because, you know, once you make a reputation as a leader, they're looking to you. Once I left the Alias board, I joined the, the Nashville Opera board. And then from 2017 to 18, I was the president of Leadership Music. And then the year after that, I was president of Nashville Opera. I also served as president of the Nashville Opera Guild which is kind of like the fundraising and educational wing. And also put a, a cherry on the community involvement. Uh, in my area in Nashville, we have our own small city government. And I ran for office and served as vice mayor of the city of Oak Hill, So, uh, which was hysterical, but, but it was a great experience. It's, uh, you want to deal with the nitty gritty of politics, do it on the most local level you can. A storied career in many different aspects, uh, for sure here. When it comes to the leadership skills that you've picked up in your many years, how does that translate to being a musician? And what can the next generation learn from your skills? One way that it translates, and I think it was something that was always with me. Well, first off, if you're the composer on a project, sometimes you'll be called upon to conduct too if you're able to. And so that's a leadership position. You've got to make the musicians feel like you know what you're doing. Even if inside you're thinking to yourself, oh my God, I'm so unqualified to be doing this. But you've got to make them think that you're qualified. It's a little bit of theatrics. And it's also really listening to people 
so that you're not micromanaging everybody, like, you know, telling every musician, say, say you're in a band, you don't want to be telling every musician what to play. That's a way to split the band apart. Let everybody contribute in, in their way and listen to what they're saying and make decisions based upon the information that you're getting from them. Diverse collaborations are always amazing to have, and especially in the varying scenes that you've been in here between uh, Anne Bancroft to Steve Croper. Uh, Ray Manzarek from The Doors. Yes. Quincy Jones, Mel Brooks even. Uh, can you share a standout experience or lesson learned from these amazing influential figures? I can tell you something that I learned from all of them in aggregate, which was each one of them was incredibly humble and incredibly nice. And that was just such a great thing to discover that these are people at the absolute top of their careers or games or so famous or, you know, whatever. And they just were the nicest people. I mean, Anne Bancroft was an absolute sweetheart to work with. Uh, she also had an incredibly strong New York accent, which threw me because uh, I always think of her like in The Graduate or something like that, where she's saying Benjamin, but in, in, when I walked in the door to rehearse with her at her house, it was like, you want some coffee? So it was very funny. And her husband, whom I was up for a movie that he was producing, I ultimately didn't get it, but I got to sit and talk with him for an hour and a half. And so, as I say, that's my greatest rejection because yeah, I didn't get the job, but I got to sit and talk with Mel Brooks for an hour and a half, who was also incredibly nice. And Quincy Jones was interesting. I learned something from him. I didn't work with him. I was friends with his eldest daughter. She and I were going to go to a play. Uh, we lived not too far from each other in the west side of LA at this point. She called me and she said, I've got to go to a party at my dad's house. Why don't you come there? You can meet my dad and we'll then go to the play from there. And I was like, well, of course, you know. So I thought it was going to be this party and I'll get to talk to him for you know, four or five minutes. And when we walked in, there was nobody there except the the housekeeper, Jolie, his daughter, my friend was getting ready. And he walked, I was sitting in the kitchen. He walked in, pulled up a stool and sat in front of me. And we talked for an hour because he said, you know, Jolie tells me you're in music. What do you do? And I said, well, these days I'm doing a lot of scoring work for television. And he got up off his stool and bowed to me. And I started to laugh and I said, okay, why is Quincy Jones bowing to me? And he said, because you do the hardest job in all of music. Evidently, as he told me, he had done the score for a TV series called Ironside back in the 60s. At the end of the season, he had a complete nervous breakdown and had to be medicated and shipped off to Tahiti, which is not a terrible place you know, to have a nervous breakdown. Yeah. But the pressure was so enormous he couldn't deal with it. So that harkens back to what we talked about earlier. And then Ray Manzarek was unbelievably humble. This was my boyhood, one of my boyhood idols, because I loved especially the second Doors album, Strange Days. And I figured out all the keyboard parts when I was a kid. And now he's sitting in my, he wanted to come see me work on a TV show uh, called Erie, Indiana. And my agent set it up and he came over and he was just the nicest person. So I think that that's what I took away from from all of them. Uh, Erie, Indiana was my favorite show as well, by the way. I, I saw all of that. <laughs> You're kidding. Oh, no, that's, uh, no, I, it's developed a cult following. It's, it's, 
And I think it was the uh, precursor of Stranger Things. Oh, yes. Without you know, that. in many ways, uh, although much lighter in tone. Uh, and it didn't overstay its welcome. So, you know, there you go. Right, right. <laughs> but it was it was extremely well done. And uh, I love sci-fi and fantasy and everything like that. It's 90210 in terms of the, the first, the theme for the first season. And talk about that yeah. process, because that's a whole different avenue of uh, television. Yeah, that we it wasn't even for the first season. It was just for the first pilot episode. I'll explain what happened. But I had met um, Jeff Skunk Baxter the guitarist from the Doobie Brothers and Steely Dan, who's another one, is just the nicest guy. And here's this guitar legend. And we were approached, I think we had already done some work on a TV show together. And we were approached to write the theme for this new show that wasn't called Beverly Hills 90210. I think it was just called Beverly Hills High or something like that. Or P.O. Box, I can't remember. So Jeff and I came up with this theme that the producers really liked Chuck and um, anyway, uh, whatever his name was. Uh, as Jeff and I were writing it, we were saying, oh, we should have saxophone on this. And so I said, oh, okay, I know a great uh, session player. And Jeff is very funny. He said, no, I'll call Edgar. And I said, Edgar who? And he said, Edgar Winter. And I said, you're kidding. You know, because first off, my favorite blues guitarist in the world is Johnny Winter. And then Edgar's First album, Entrance, is brilliant, uh, especially his version of Tobacco Road. And his band, Edgar Winter's White Trash, was unheralded band that was amazing. You know, full horn section and the whole thing. So I was very excited. And Edgar was another incredibly nice guy. A little spooky because his vision was very bad. So, and he's albino. So he was reading the music like this close to his face. But he did a great job on it. And Everybody, you know, the producers loved it. But the executive producer was Aaron Spelling. He saw the pilot and hated the graphics in the opening of the pilot. So he dumped everything from the opening, including our theme. One of those things that you're just like, okay, you know. And at the time, you know, it didn't seem like that big a deal because it didn't seem like a show that was really going to have legs. But then three years into its run, I was like, crap, you know, I wish we had that theme, that just steady stream of royalties. What happened was the post-production uh, supervisor or producer, uh, Kenny, felt bad about that. So he hired me to score a bunch of the episodes. So in that first season, I, I think I did seven or eight, somewhere in there, a whole bunch of episodes, including a very famous one where Brenda and Dylan first book up. So uh, that was uh, called Isn't It Romantic? The whole atmosphere around spelling productions was not good. When you started composing at an early age to where you currently are in your life now, what is the main difference between composing for television versus a feature film? And does that change the way you compose? It doesn't change the way you compose, although generally on feature film, you get more time. It's still a very compressed schedule. But, you know, there are some episodes of 90210 that I turned around in two and a half days. The, the hardest TV job I did was a cartoon series called Crow. It was an ABC morning show. And I scored all the, I wrote the, the theme song, but also scored all the episodes. And every six days, I had to turn in 22 minutes of finished music and then start on the next episode the next day. And that was three months of my life. So... 
the time demands of television. You basically have no life. I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, I was once on a panel of television composers and I was representing kind of one of the younger ones coming up in the business. So I was probably in my early thirties at this point, but sitting next to me was uh, Gerald Freed, who scored all the episodes of Gilligan's Island. I think he also did the Brady Bunch and he looked to be in his sixties at this point. And he was just sitting at his microphone glowering and there are about 400 people in the audience it was on a careers and music day at UCLA. And somebody asked, said, Mr. Freed, what do you think is the most important element to have as a television composer? And without even blinking or hesitating, he said, a good divorce lawyer, and then leaned back. And I was like, oh, man, <laughs> I do not want to be that man. But it's, it's hard. The demands on your time and on your life are very, very difficult. Your talents extend beyond music to photography. How does your approach to photography compare to your approach to musical composition? And what themes or styles do you find when you're doing your visual work? Well, I kind of fell into the photography uh, on a, interestingly, a songwriter workshop that I was attending as a student uh, right outside of Florence at a villa organized by a friend of mine. This is back in the fall of 2015. And the reason I was there was because of the woman that was running the workshop, Gretchen Peters. She's one of my favorite songwriters and also advocates writing songs by yourself a lot, which I had mainly collaborated in songwriting. So I wanted to explore working by myself a little more. You know, and I always took pictures with this little phone and, you know, and a little digital camera. And I thought, you know, I'm going to the countryside of Italy. Uh, I should get a better camera. So a friend recommended this Sony kind of mid-level, what they called a one-shot camera, but it turned out to be a really high quality camera with a black and white function, a really good Zeiss lens and all this. And all of a sudden, I love old black and white movies. I was obsessed with them as a kid, and I still am. My favorite channel is Turner Classic Movies. And especially film noir with the shading and the mystery involved and the people uh, and there's so many, you know, close-ups of people in the shadows. And I had a free day in Florence. So I wandered around taking pictures of people instead of buildings and historical sites. There were a couple that I looked at. And I said, you know, I think these are pretty good. I posted them to Facebook. And when I came back from that trip, a neighbor of mine around the block here in Nashville, one of the best photographers in town, were Facebook friends, so he'd seen the photos. So I'll never forget, I was walking my dog and he pulled up his car and he said, were you posting archival photos from Italy? Because the black and white, they look like they're from another era. And I said, no, I, if you mean the black and white, I took those photos. So he looked at me and said, you took those photos? And I said, yeah, why? And he said, well, they're really good. And now you need to start bringing a camera with you wherever you go. So he gave me some early encouragement and I did. My next trip was to uh, Havana and I took a lot of pictures there and Washington DC and New Orleans and then eventually back to Italy to the same villa, but by myself this time. I came back, by, by that time I had tons of photos and I got a couple printed out and the woman at the, the printing, a professional printer, not like Kinko's, she looked at me and she said, did you take these photos? And I said, yeah, why? 
So she said, do you have more like this? And I said, yeah, a ton. So she said, okay, here's an art store to go to, buy a portfolio, start getting more printed out because we think you're onto something and just fill the portfolio. So I did. And that led to me getting my first photography show uh, at a great gallery downtown called uh, The Arts Company. I was stunned. I couldn't believe that the gallery owner wanted to do a show of my work. Uh, but she said, this, this stuff is just great. Uh, sold a couple of pieces from it, which was amazing. So I'm now in the midst of my fourth show, which I'm really proud of because it's at Nashville Airport. They feature the work of local artists has been up since the beginning of November and it'll come down at the end of February. So during the holidays, I started getting texts from all these friends that were traveling through that part of the airport saying, I can't believe this. You know, I came off the air, uh, the airplane into the, and, and there you are, you know, so it was, um, and it featured photos of mine from London and Nashville. It's become a, another means of artistic expression that I enjoy. I think the similarities are the storytelling that with songwriting and composing, you're, you're enhancing a story in a scoring work, adding to the story. In a song, it's a freestanding story. And then a photo, you've caught somebody in a moment that will never exist again. And that freezes time. And so, if there's a certain hand gesture or an expression, body language, if you if you are consciously trying to capture that, you're telling the story of that person. So it's it's uh, it's very similar. Although the the good thing is it's it's also much more of you know you you have immediate gratification because you take the photo and you look at it and say oh okay you know it's not like now I have to go demo it I have to do this I have to do this but it's been really fun and and totally unexpected I mean somebody said to me 20 years ago oh you're going to be a you know a, an award-winning photographer I would have said yeah you're out of your mind but it just shows that you know the limits we set are very often the limits in our own minds photography spoke to me as well too and so i understand the the fact that you can get a, a an amazing even just with a single light and you're getting that house shadow on the other side or you get someone in action or you happen to see like what you experience with people just people yeah, watching yeah. In, in a different light is it's amazing what what you can come to buy and then the internal stories start to come into into play like like how you have a lot of your photographs on your website as well you know, telling that story, you know, what is this person thinking or, you know, right. especially the old guy getting chewed up by his, his wife or something like that. That was hilarious as well. So yeah. <laughs> I thought it was, it's fascinating that, you know, that instantaneous snap can turn your day around even. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and what's interesting when you do street photography, you're basically wandering around and you have to get out of your own head. I find that I myself go into almost like a Zen-like state where I'm just observing everybody. So I call street photography the anti-selfie. You know, instead of it being, I'm obsessed with myself. So here I am in front of this great work of art. There, there I am proving that I was there. Instead, you're, you're seeing everybody else in the room. And that's far more interesting to me than taking pictures of myself.
Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, I think even if you did a traveling series, whether you'd go around Europe or whether you go around, you know, your neighborhoods, it's amazing what you can find and yeah. and where, what you can experience. Maybe you're, you're going to see a restaurant you've never been to, or maybe you see a, a group of friends that you just haven't met yet. So, Right, right. Well, I've been traveling uh, a lot in the past few years. One place I went to a year ago from October for the first time was Paris. And I completely fell in love with Paris and I've been there three times now and I'm actually going back next month. I belong to these Facebook street photography groups, which are great. Um, and I've through that met photographers around the world. You know, it, it's a very specific community, uh, the street photographers, especially. They're kind of more the, the rebels of photography. You have to be very stealthy sometimes to catch somebody you know, try not to shove a camera in their face. Good thing there are zoom lenses, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everyone has one person that inspired them on their path to where they are today. Who was that for you? Well, it would have been my, my teachers. Also my mother, who was very artistic uh, and very funny. Uh, although she was horrified when I told her I was going to become a musician. But one teacher uh, had a tremendous impact. I don't know if it's necessarily that he was inspiring, but he put me on a different path. Uh, and that was my jazz teacher in New York named Lou Stein. I was studying with him for a couple of years. He had a jazz workshop on Monday nights and I was writing music for that. Uh, and I was working at that studio in Connecticut that I mentioned and I was you know, getting paid to write music for them. And after one of my lessons, Lou took me aside and it turned out that Lou had made an absolute fortune writing jingles. He said to me after one of the lessons, he said, you know, you're a really good piano player, but if you ask me your path in music is, is as a composer, he said, you do it easily. Uh, you're already getting paid for it. Um, I was, I think I was probably 20 years old at this point. And he said, also, if you pursue that, you could potentially make more money. You could get more respect. Uh, you won't have to tour and do all those things. And I had about an hour drive back from his house back to Long Island, where I was back with my parents. And it was like the heavens opened up above with the, the choir singing. And I realized he was right. And that's when I really started to refocus and said, you know, this is what I'm going to do. So he was he was very instrumental in that. It's always good to have a mentor like that, especially yeah. that really kind of opens your eyes to things you weren't thinking about. Right. From a professional standpoint, you've had a wonderful career as a composer, as well as working with arts councils and now as a photographer as well, too. So professionally, you're successful in many aspects of your creative journey. Do you consider yourself personally successful? Uh, no. Um, uh, you know, I think every artist has that gnawing sense of you know oh, I, I could have done more I could or I could do more or and I'm a very poor judge of my own work you know it's very hard to define success I think rather than you know dwelling on that too much I think you have to dwell on the process you know to say you know it's the journey that's a little cliched but there is a process that you go through with everything artistic. I've always tried to focus on the process and 
look backward as little as possible because that can be a, a trap. And it also prevents you from trying new things like, you know, like photography or whatever, where it's, it's just a, an unexpected journey. The reverse of success is failure. How do you deal with your failures? Usually uh, in a fetal position on the couch for, you know, a few weeks. No, it, I, it's actually my greatest fear is of failure. Um, it's driven me since I was a child. I don't know if I've had that many what I would call failures. There are things that I didn't get, um, you know, that I was rejected from. Um, that's not necessarily a failure. That that could be the vagaries of the business or some politics or whatever. Like I would have loved to have done in scoring work, A-level movies. You know, I would have liked to have been, you know, John Williams and those guys uh, doing that level of film. And it, it didn't happen for a number of circumstances. Sometimes I get a little twinge about that saying, ah, you know, but at other times say, well, be thankful for all the things that you did do, you know, that I can be sitting in a, a pub. This is a true story in London. And two guys that look like, you know, soccer hooligans start talking to me and, you know, they say, oh, you're an American. What are you doing here? And so, you know, I describe myself in the music business. And as soon as I mentioned, she's like the wind, they started singing it to me. So you can't beat that. That's like every uh, songwriter's dream. And especially because it was written a long time ago and was it a, a hit at first, a long time ago. I don't dwell on the things that didn't happen. I try to dwell on what did happen and to be grateful for that. I remember dancing to prom, uh, in, in prom uh, with that song. So, you know, that was, <laughs> <laughs> didn't help me any farther with that. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny. It's never, uh, you know, I had a, a musician friend. I don't know if you're going to edit this out or not, uh, but he said, do you know how many times the song that you wrote got me laid. And I said, do you know how many times it didn't for me? Because it's too cheesy to say, you know, I wrote this for you. It's uh, because, you know, it's just bull. So uh, it's, it's very funny. The younger generation is looking at your work and they're becoming inspired to be creative in their own way, whether it's as a composer, photographer, or something creative, you've inspired them on their path. Maybe you've done so. How can they inspire the generation that follows them? A few ways. One is I hope the inspiration that I impart is stick with it. I've talked to younger people in music, uh, like somebody here in Nashville a number of years back who said, oh, you know, I, I did the L.A. thing. I went out there for about eight months, nine months, and it didn't work out. So I came home and I said, eight, nine months. He said, it took me five years in L.A. just to get an agent. So you've got to stick with it and you've got to keep expanding what you do. I always used to tell um, guys with synths, I'd say, learn orchestration for traditional instruments. And then for orchestrators, I'd say, learn how to use a synthesizer. Keep learning and keep doing things that are, that are interesting. Uh, and I think that's the way to inspire the, the generation that's coming up behind you. Last question is this, and this is the fun one. If, okay. if your life was a film or a TV show, what would its title be? And what, what would its soundtrack be? 
this year, one of my projects is to try to write a book uh, about the path of creativity, but make it a more of a coffee table book with photos and, you know, things like this and stories. But also, you know, when you are, cre when you are a creative person and you enter that field, you're different than most people. You're absolutely a different being. I remember being at, wasn't a high school reunion, but a bunch of people from my high school were gathered, you know, from Long Island. And I was telling a story and this woman whom I known since, you know, elementary school just looked at me and said, well, I don't understand something. Do you have a job? And I looked at her and I said, a job? No. I said, I've worked a ton, but I've never had a job. You know, it's just a different thing. But anyway, one time when I was about 18, I was walking with my father on a, a very nice town on the North shore of Long Island called Bayville. There was a sign in a seafood restaurant that said, piano player wanted, must know how to open clams. And I think and my father nudged me and pointed at the sign and said, you'd better up your game. I don't want to see you opening clams at some point. And uh, I think that that would be the title of the, uh, of, the, the movie, you know, Piano Player Wanted Must Know How to Open Clams. The soundtrack would probably be stuff that I've already written and then things that I would, you know, write new, you know, to, to score it. But definitely a lot of the music that I've done, pieces in particular that I might be proud of. Uh, but I, I think that that would be the, the title. It's, it's an intriguing and very funny. Yeah, I like it. You could all even turn it into a, one of those holiday specials as well, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A, a Hallmark <laughs> Christmas Hallmark, special. Exactly. Or in my case, a Hanukkah special. So yeah, uh, Even you know. better. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, Stacey, I do hate to say it, but that ends this particular episode of Two Geeks Talking. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you. You did a great job, and it's been a lot of fun. Before I let you go, where can we find you? How can we support you? And anything else you'd like like to promote website or social media wise? Well, uh, my website is simply stacywidelitz.com. Uh, Stacy Widelitz, all one word, dot com. Uh, and my Instagram page where I'm posting a lot of new photos regularly at Stacy Widelitz, again, all one word. My Facebook page also, if you look it up under Stacy Widelitz, I put up a lot of photography there and uh, so that's a, a fun way to follow what I'm doing. Well, like I said, that ends this particular episode of Two Geeks Hockey. You can, of course, find this interview and a thousand plus others on our website, tgtbd.com or twogeekstalking.com. That's the word T-W-O, not the number two. The website's going through a revamp. Go to our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash TGT Media. The podcast is back after 12 or so years. You, you can go to that at twogeekstalking.podbean.com or just search Two Geeks Talking wherever you get your podcasts where you'll see Stacy's interview and 1,200 plus others. And as I say every week, everyone has a story to tell. It's up to me to help bring that out. Thanks for listening and watching on Two Geeks Talking.